As we continue in our study of the Gospel of Mark, we come to a passage today that many scholars believe is a turning point in Mark's Gospel. So we've studied so far the early part of Jesus' ministry in the Sea of Galilee area, his miracles, and now we turn and shift toward an important part of the ministry when Jesus reveals who he really is. And this takes the disciples off guard, and so we're going to see how they respond to this and how this has an impact on our lives this morning. So stand with me as we read this passage. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 and following. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, Who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged him to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone should come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whatever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? And forfeit his soul. For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter. And James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And the cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning that we would see Jesus only. Father, we ask that you would use your word, help us to understand it, and it applied to our lives this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm reminded of an event that took place about three weeks ago when I was invited to a FCA banquet down at Seawells. Many of you in the audience I know were there, and it was a great time to gather in FCA standing for Fellowship of Christian Athletes. They were raising money, and they were, of course, inviting some celebrity football stars to come to make sure people came to this banquet. So as I got to the banquet, uh, they, they invited George Rogers and Herschel Walker. And I saw George Rogers as I came in, sitting at a table, not too many people around him. So as I went over there, 
I uh, went up to him and was able to shake his hand, get a picture with him. And then later on in the banquet, they had uh, Herschel Walker come out, of course, under greater security as he's now running for uh, senator in Georgia. And he continued to give a presentation of how God had used him in his career through college and through his pro career. So, of course, after the banquet, I sent the picture to my kids very proudly, and, and, I, and they said, oh, Dad, who's in the picture with you? And I, it's like, well, see, I went to this banquet, and, and we got to see Herschel Walker and George Rogers. Oh, so is that Herschel Walker? I said, no, no, Herschel Walker still looks like, like he could do a thousand push-ups a day, like he's known for. George Rogers, he's the bigger guy, that's, that's the one with me. Uh, so, so who is George Rogers again, Dad? He's this uh, great football player that back when I was going to college in that era, he was the Heisman Trophy winner. He, he, was, he was a big deal back then. Oh, Dad, so, so he's really old. <laughs> Thanks a lot, kids. So sometimes, something that we think is obvious, some people say, who is that? And this is the question we're looking at this morning. Who is Jesus, really? Something that we should often take for granted, but yet the disciples did not have a full understanding of who Jesus is. And as we look at this this morning, this is a much more important question than some trivial football star. In the light of eternity, we see in this passage in Mark that Jesus lays out who, who is Jesus really in three ways. First, we see the person of Jesus. Then we see the plan of Jesus. And then we see the promise of Jesus and how each of these can dramatically affect our lives. As we look at the uh, background going into this passage, we remember just coming off the last week's sermon that Jesus has healed the man in Bethsaida. And so just as Jesus performs a miracle of physical healing and his eyes were opened, we see in this passage that Jesus is showing a, a spiritual healing and dropping the scales from the eyes of the disciples, and there's a spiritual understanding that takes place in this section of Scripture. We know from Scripture that the disciples have now been with Jesus for several years, so you would think that they would know what he's all about. You would think that they could answer his difficult questions, but yet the disciples are caught off guard. And so this, things begin to shift from the Jesus of miracles to now the Jesus that is headed toward Jerusalem to fulfill his calling, his suffering, and ultimately his crucifixion for us. As we look at the verse 27, we see that the disciples are headed toward Caesarea Philippi. Now this is a town near the foot of Mount Hermon. It's about 25 miles away as they head toward this town. I calculated that 25 miles is about from here to Newberry. So just imagine going from here to Newberry. Of course, they didn't have to deal with the traffic and all the construction and the highway. But this is a long way. And this was typical, the disciples traveling from town to town. So as they're going through from where they are to Caesarea Philippi, they are walking and talking, and Jesus is using this as a teaching time. Now Caesarea Philippi, where they were headed, was a very pagan city. You'll recall that this was some place of great uh, pagan worship. The Israelites, during the time of the early Israel, we see that was a place of Baal worship. We also know later that the Greeks worship the god of Pan, and later 
the Romans honored their Caesar. And so we have Caesarea and then Philip the Tetrarch put his name on there. So you had Caesarea Philippi. So we're going to a pagan town, walking along the way, lots of time to discuss spiritual matters. So Jesus starts out and asks them this question, who do people say that I am? The first answer they give him is John the Baptist. Now why would people think that he's John the Baptist? If we look back several chapters ago, we remember in Mark chapter 6, verse 14, that Herod thought he was John the Baptist. It says, Now King Herod heard of Jesus, for his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Remember that King Herod was afraid of John the Baptist because he was accusing him of a sinful relationship. And so you remember that his daughter danced at the party and therefore asked what what she could have. And he said, I'll give you anything. And she asked for John the Baptist's head on the platter because of the influence of her mother. So Herod remembers this and he's thinking, now Jesus has come back and he's going to seek revenge. And so this is what his thought was. This could be John the Baptist. But we know it's not John the Baptist. And the second answer they give him is, well, maybe it's Elijah. Now, why would they say that? Why would the disciples think and others think that perhaps Jesus was Elijah? Well, if we look back to the very end of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, you'll see an interesting couple of verses that point to an Elijah that is coming. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So you can see 400 years before the coming of Christ, there's a predicted prophet, Elijah, someone coming to be the fulfillment of this prophecy. But as we look at scripture in the Gospel of Luke a little closer, we see that this Elijah is not pointing to Jesus as some thought, but pointing, in fact, to John the Baptist. You'll remember the Christmas story where the angel appears to Zacharias and tells him of his son, John the Baptist, that's going to be born. It says in Luke chapter 1, verse 17, he, John the Baptist, the angel speaking, he will also go before him, go before Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So you see the connection of those two verses. The fulfillment of the verses in Malachi point to John the Baptist here in Luke. The disciples all say, maybe people think you're one of the prophets because in Deuteronomy, there's a saying, Moses is speaking, saying, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet among, among you. So therefore, maybe it was Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. So if we were to ask that question today, who do people think that Jesus is? What would they say? I think some indeed, as we talk with our friends and coworkers and we watch the media, some would think he's just a historical figure, a man that exists, maybe a prophet in some circles. I think a common understanding is, well, he is one option for people, for a way of salvation, one way to get to heaven. He's one among many. 
But Jesus says clearly in scriptures in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is the only way to heaven, the Bible says clearly. And then Jesus points to the disciples and says, okay, so who do you say that I am? And Peter, being the impulsive leader of the disciples, quickly says, you are the Christ. What does Christ mean? When he says you are the Christ, Christ means the anointed one in the Greek. or In the Hebrew, we're familiar with the term Messiah. He is the Messiah, the deliverer, the savior. We know from the parallel passage in Matthew of this account that Jesus responds to Peter and he says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You see, God was the one that revealed who Jesus is to Peter. They didn't really have a good understanding. I think sometimes we try to argue with non-believers to convince them of our beliefs. And yet in this passage, in this verse, we see that Peter's understanding was because God gave him understanding. Do we pray for our non-believers or do we try to argue them into the kingdom? We see here the power of God's opening their eyes. And Jesus goes on to say to Peter in that passage in Matthew, and I say to you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. You see, this is a play on words in the Greek, the word rock is Petra, like where we get the word petroleum. And so Peter is changed from Simon to Simon Peter, Petra, the rock. And he would go on to be a key figure in the foundation of the church. And then Jesus says, but don't tell anybody. Do not go out and tell anybody. Why would he say this? Wouldn't we want to proclaim the gospel? You see, the understanding of being the Messiah that has been predicted for centuries might lead people to start a political revolution. He might be the deliverer from Rome, from the oppressors, and people might follow Jesus for the wrong reasons. So what is Jesus' plan if it's not for people to follow him right then and to start a political campaign? Secondly, we see the plan of Jesus starting in verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. Right here, Jesus gives a clear summary of the gospel. He gives a clear summary that he will suffer, he will die, he will rise again to pay the penalty for our sins. Only through Jesus can we be reconciled because of our sin and receive eternal life. But Peter, he doesn't like that answer. He's thinking, but I'm, I'm the rock. I'm the Dwayne Johnson of that day. I'm important. I, want, I like this overthrow the Roman government idea. I don't like the idea of suffering and death. And Jesus says, turning in verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Jesus and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. Have you ever told God that he's wrong, that he's not following your plan? That's what Peter was doing. Sometimes we like to make our plans and then we ask God to bless our plans instead of stopping and praying and asking God what his will is and looking at scripture and following his plan. 
And so Jesus describes in the next verse, this is my plan. This is what it looks like. It's not for you to have this glorious political uprising. Instead, Jesus goes on to say in verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his, with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone should come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whenever I read this verse, I think of an experience I had years ago back in Costa Rica, meeting a man named Arthur Blessed. Now, Arthur Blessed was a, started out in California as a pastor in the late 60s, and he had a 12-foot cross in his sanctuary like we have had in past times. And so he decided that he would, as he preached about the gospel, he would carry this cross around the world to preach the gospel, to take the, the word to every country existing at that time. And so he literally took it off the wall, put a little wheel on the back so when he carried it, it wouldn't drag, and he literally went to every country in the world preaching the gospel. He fulfilled that in 2008, and he's in the Guinness Book of World Records for that. And I was a teenager back in Costa Rica in the late 70s. My parents were missionaries there, and he came through Costa Rica. So we all gather around and heard him preach, and here he comes along carrying his cross. So I can't read this verse without thinking of deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. But I think we all know that Jesus is not literally calling each of us to walk around the world as Arthur Blessed did and carry our cross. He's talking about denying ourselves, talking about the tradition of condemned prisoners carrying their cross as they went for execution, identifying with Christ in his death, putting our own needs last and putting Christ first. He goes on to describe this further when he says in verse 35, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? When I think of this great sacrifice, I think of missionary Steve Saint. Some of you will remember back when we started this congregation, this gathering back in 2004, we were meeting at the Dutch Fork High School. And Steve Saint was our missionary speaker. In fact, I think Dean Aldis was involved in leading that conference. And I was on staff at the time as an assistant pastor. And I got to fly down to Florida to talk to Steve and try to invite him up to our conference. And hearing his story was so moving as Steve Saint was the son of pilot Nate Saint and four other missionaries that had gone down to Ecuador to reach the Wadani Indians. And they had made some contact with them from the air, but when they thought that it was safe to land and see them in person, they went down to the savage tribe and brought Bibles and methods to share the gospel. But when they got out of the plane, they were attacked with spears by the Indians. Now, they had actually carried guns with them in case they needed to use them for wild animals, but they chose not to use their guns because they didn't want to kill these Indians and send them into a Christless eternity. But they knew that they were Christians and they were going to heaven. They would lost their lives for the sake of these Indians. Steve Saint, our speaker, was there as a young boy with his mother who is now widowed and the other children and some of the other families. They stayed in Ecuador. And they continued to minister 
And eventually, God opened the door and they penetrated this small Indian tribe that turned to Christ. And over time, a man named Minkayani, an Indian who actually killed Steve Saint's father, Nate, came to Christ. And Steve served as an adult missionary in that area. And this man, Minkayani, actually baptized Steve Saint and continued to travel and to speak and to build churches in the jungles of Ecuador. In fact, all of our missionaries here at Grace Point, many that we support, are serving God, maybe in not such a dramatic way of actually giving their lives physically, but they are giving of their time and of their lives. We have Phil Luther here from Greece. We had Sam and Lizzie last couple weeks ago from Germany. We know of our missionaries in the jungles of Peru, the Simmons that were here this summer. We know of Ruthie Cooper, who's serving in Alaska in a remote village to help our veterans. People, the list goes on and on, but people of great sacrifice, giving of their time, willing to serve. And of course, as we pray for them and as we give, we support them. But God's calling us to also deny ourselves, to give up our lives, to serve those at our work, those at our neighborhood, those in our community. And then he says in verse 38, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. He says, do not be ashamed. And when I think of someone who is not ashamed of the gospel, I think of Chuck Applegate. Chuck Applegate was someone who would share his faith with anyone. Those of you that went down on the mission trips to Costa Rica with him, remember that he never knew a stranger. He didn't speak Spanish, but that didn't stop him. He would go and hug people. He would tell jokes. He was very animated. He would give gifts. He was there serving tirelessly, working in the church. Chuck Applegate was not ashamed of the gospel. Even back here at home, many of you remember how he would come to your home. He came to my home. I'm sure he came to many of your homes to fix things. And he would share about Jesus and his work around the world. And at the end of the time, I'd say, well, can I, can I give you some money for this work? And he'd say, don't worry about it. If you want to make a donation to help build a church in Costa Rica, give it to my mission organization. Always focusing on Christ. In fact, in light of his recent passing, we're collecting funds to build a church in Costa Rica in memory of Chuck Applegate. And so as the disciples were challenged by these conditions for discipleship. Jesus then moves on to the next section and encourages them as he points to the future hope that comes from following Jesus. We see in verse 9, in chapter 9, verse 1, truly I say to you, there are some things, some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So we see the third point, the promise of Jesus. This statement often raises speculation as to what is Jesus talking about? Is he saying that we will, if we know Christ, we will not taste death? Well, in a spiritual sense, those who know Christ will not experience spiritual death. But even after this life, we know that Jesus promises eternal life. But in this specific verse, he's also addressing the three disciples that will go and see his glory at the transfiguration. They will not die before they see his glory just a few days later. It's a precursor of Christ's return in glory one day. 
And so in verse 2, it says, After six days, Jesus took him with Peter, James, and John and led him up a high mountain. Now, scholars believe that this is Mount Hermon, which is about 9,000 feet above sea level. Now, I just got back from Denver, Colorado last week where my sister had invited, where she lives, and invited my mom and I out for a birthday celebration with extended family. And those of you that have been in Colorado or out west know the enormous mountains and the the beauty of going up on a mountain last week, 11,600 feet at Guanilla Pass, and just the breathtaking awareness of God's creation and of the majesty of all that's around you. This was the kind of experience that he brought the disciples to. We talk about in our discipleship program, GRIP, that many of you men are involved in, the importance of getting away and just spending time with God alone, having that mountaintop experience where he can speak to you, where he can, you can think deeply about the issues that God is dealing with you. And so I challenge all of us to Take that time to spend time on the mountain with God in nature. And so as they gather on this mountaintop, we see in verse 3 that Jesus' clothes become radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. We see here the divinity of Christ through his brightness, through the whiteness of his clothes. We see that theme throughout Scripture. That symbolizes the divinity of Jesus. If you think back of the familiar passage in John Chapter 1 and 14, it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Certainly the disciples beheld his glory in that moment. God is authenticating the glory of Christ that we will one day all experience, and the fact that he is indeed God himself. But then there appears Elijah and Moses, and they're talking with Jesus. Now, why would Elijah and Moses be there? What is the significance of them being with Jesus in that moment? Well, you remember that Moses, of course, is the one who God gave the Ten Commandments to. So he signifies the law of the Old Testament. And then Elijah represents the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. And so we see here Moses and Elijah, these two great people who the Jews look to as kind of the key figures in all of the Old Testament. But Jesus says, I am greater than them. I am the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. You'll remember in Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come as to abolish, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. Jesus indeed is the Messiah. He is the one that the law and the prophets spoke about for centuries. He is the fulfillment that encourages us that even though he calls us to suffering, even though this life has many hardships, ultimately he is the Messiah that delivers us and promises us eternal life. One reminder that there is eternal life is the fact that Moses and Elijah are even there. You remember that Moses was the one that was not allowed to go into the promised land because he had sinned. Instead of speaking to the rock for the water to come out, he struck the rock and sinned against God. But year 1,600 years later, Moses finally gets his first tour of the Holy Land. He's finally there with Jesus. There is eternal life. And Elijah, who never died but was caught up in that whirlwind over a 1,000 years prior, he's back. He's still with Jesus, reminding the disciples that Jesus promises eternal life. 
And then God says, And a cloud overshadowed him, and a voice came out of, our, of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Peter wants to just stay there and enjoy this moment, but God says, No, I have a greater purpose. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to his plan. And there's the authentication of Jesus from God the Father, who once again we see in a cloud, just like the cloud on Mount Sinai when Moses received the Ten Commandments, just like the cloud that led the Israelites through the desert, God himself speaking the words that we're very familiar with as we think back about the baptism of Jesus at the Jordan. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. I think if God could speak to us audibly this morning, that would be his message for us. Listen to him. So ask yourself, are you listening to him? Do you know Jesus Christ is your savior? Listen to him. Today could be the day of salvation. If you do know him, are you spending time with him in his word, in prayer? Are you listening to his plan to sacrifice, to reach others for Christ, to put your own agenda aside? Are you listening to his promise of eternal life? Do you live life in light of eternity, focusing that, yes, there are hardships in this life, but as we put Christ first, we have the hope of eternal life with him. In, in closing, I'm reminded of another hero, much more important than football players, watching football players at uh, Williams Bryce, whether it's Herschel Walker or George Rogers, a much greater hero was meeting Billy Graham at Williams Bryce Stadium back in 1987. Many of you might have been there for the Billy Graham Crusades during that time. And as a counselor, I had the honor of meeting him and always looked up to him, not only his message, which was incredible, his words, but his life of integrity, of pointing people to Christ and of always pointing to heaven and the hope, no matter what people had done in life, there was always hope for heaven. And so I think Billy Graham sums up what we're trying to point out this morning in his autobiography, Just As I Am, that the focus needs to be on life, on heaven after this life. These words are words of encouragement and comfort as we mourn the loss of loved ones that many of us have lost recently, and especially here in this congregation. We think most recently of our brother, Chuck Applegate. And so Billy Graham writes these words right before he died. No, I don't know the future, but I do know this. The best is yet to be. Heaven awaits us, and that will be far, far more glorious than anything we can ever imagine. This is the hope of every believer. It is my hope, and I pray that it is your hope as well. I know that soon my life will be over, and I thank God for it and for all that he has given me in this life. But I look forward to heaven. I look forward to the reunion with friends and loved ones who have gone on before. I look forward to heaven's freedom from sorrow and from pain. I also look forward to serving God in ways we can't begin to imagine. For the Bible makes it clear that heaven is not a place of idleness. 
And most of all, I look forward to seeing Christ and bowing before him in praise and gratitude for all he has done for us and for using me on this earth by his grace, just as I am. Let's pray together. Father, we long to hear you speak. We know that if you spoke audibly this morning, you would say, listen to my son. Father, help us to truly understand in a deeper way who Jesus is, what he has called us to do, whether it's in the jungles or whether it's in our office. Father, help us never to be ashamed of you, for you promise that eternal life lies ahead for those who put their trust in you. We know that, as Billy Graham so eloquently wrote, heaven lies ahead. And that is the glory that our brother Chuck Applegate is even now experiencing with you in heaven. We recognize, Father, that our entrance into heaven is only made possible by your amazing grace through your Son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his powerful name that we pray. Amen.